Welcome to the First Mass Podcast. Let's listen in today as Pastor Paul continues his series on legacy out of 1 Timothy with a sermon titled, Becoming an Expert in the Law, out of 1 Timothy chapter 1. As Pastor Bill mentioned in his prayer, we have about 35 women, I don't know what the final number was, at women's retreat this weekend up in Camp Tushi outside of Dayton. And so they're about to hit the road, I think, I don't know. I hope so. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Yes. Amen. I'm in the book of 1 Timothy this morning, and as you're opening your Bible to join me there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, let me just take care of a couple of housekeeping items. Let me remind you that every Thursday morning I pray with anybody who is interested in praying at 6 a.m. via Zoom. And love to have you join me. In order to receive the link to that, we put it on Facebook, but we also send it out via text. And so if you'd like to receive that link every Thursday morning at 5.55, send the word prayer to that number, and you'll be on our church prayer list, and we'd love to have you join us. It's a pretty quiet, laid-back time of prayer. I do uh, kind of a, some wordy prayer, but I also do some just quiet, meditative prayer and, and lead folks through it. You're welcome to pray out during that time. You're welcome to keep your camera off and your microphone muted during that time. And so uh, I know that I haven't showered usually, and so that's okay. It's, uh, it's not smell-o-vision, thank goodness. So, And uh, Pastor Steve mentioned our, our Welcome to First Naz Lunch. I just did want to highlight that, that if, if you've been attending the church for however long you've been attending and you would just like to know more about who do we think we are, <clears throat> you are welcome to, to come and be a part of that. Love to, to have you join for, for that. And then I wanted to make mention on Wednesday nights, I am continuing through a book called The Seven Deadly Spirits, and it's going through the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, chapters uh, two and three in the book of Revelation. And it's a book by author uh, Scott Daniels, who is a general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene. And it is a, it's a challenging book. It, it makes us think about um, who, who we are as a church and the spirit that might be a part of us. And so I'd encourage you to join us for that. And it's right after, lunch, after dinner on Wednesday. So it's a, it's a nice, easy, easy thing to be a part of. So <clears throat> let's see. This week I was reminded of a conversation I had that I don't think I'll ever forget uh, it was just like kind of a throwaway conversation. I was in, in my, like 10 years or so ago, I was living in central Washington and I was, I was getting, I had always been sort of interested in mountain climbing and rock climbing and I was getting more and more, I was doing more climbing all the time and I had met some friends that were like good climbers. I had met this one guy that was like, he's still probably the best climber I know. His name is Dean He's got forearms like Popeye, like he is, he is a total stud climber. He can climb like stuff I would never dream of. It makes my palms sweaty just thinking about some of the stuff that he's, he's climbed because uh, it's just too scary. But he, he's a total stud. And so when I, was, when I was like trying to get better myself, he was somebody that he would take me into the gym every once in a while and show me some techniques and, and I was probably at this time, there's, there's like some passages in, in the career of a, lo, of a rock climber. They say there's old climbers and there's bold climbers, but there's no old, bold climbers. And so you, you go through some, some passages of naivete as a climber and, and you hope you survive them. And you think that maybe you know more than you actually know and you get yourself into situations where you, you look back and you say, well, we survived that one, didn't we? Uh, and sometimes in spite of yourself. And so I was, I was probably in those, those early stages of a developing rock climber, and I always want to be a beginner. I'm always like, I'd never want to think that I have it all figured out as a, as a climber or mount, in the mountains or anything. So I'm always, I'm always looking to learn, but I was... I was at the point where I was like the strongest of a group of three of us. We were going to go do a, a high peak that was going to 
require some, some rock gear on the way up, and, and I needed help with a technique of having two partners because I had never done that before, and so I called Dean. And uh, Dean, Dean was like the guru, right? And so I went to the guru, and, and I, I, was in, I was in Spokane driving home from some continuing education stuff I was doing there, and I, I remember I called him mid-afternoon, and, and he said, uh, I, I was like, hey, what, how's it going? Hey, can you help me out? I need, I need some advice on how to do this. And he's like, of course, man, I'd love to, love to help you out. And he's like, I'm driving too right now. I'm going to, I, I actually, I, I'm get, just getting my kids from school. And, you know, I was a new dad at this time. And in my experience with my, my sisters, uh, who had kids a little bit older than mine at that time was like if I was on the phone with them when they were getting the kids from school, they dropped me like a hot potato. Like there was no more interest in having like as soon as they they were like in the car headed to get their kids from school, they were like, I don't have any time for you, little brother. Get away from me. And and so I thought you know Dean would say like so I got to go right like. And so I, I just said, well, I, I let you go. You got to, you know, be a dad. And he, he, he said, I missed the part of the conversation I'll never forget. He said, uh, man, I'm a rock climber. And that was it. That was like, he, he had no interest in ending the conversation because he was wanting to talk climbing. And, and so uh, I, I had this like realization. Dean, by the way, excellent dad incredible Christian man, super, super incredible guy. Like, this is not to say anything bad about Dean, but I just had this realization in this moment that, like, his, his identity, more than, more than just about anybody I knew, was wrapped up in, in being a climber. And, and he wanted to, like, his investment in me, I think he, mostly he didn't want me to kill anybody. He, he, his investment in me was to make sure that I could, like, come along and, and help other people out in, in the way. And it was because of who he saw himself to be, who, who he thought he was, uh, that his identity was wrapped up in that. That's kind of an interesting, interesting idea. I'm, I'm continuing to, today through the book of 1 Timothy. I started last, last week uh, looking at this letter that Paul wrote to one of his most important disciples in the early church, and last week I had Pastor Ryan here with me, and we anticipate doing a lot of these sermons together, but if you are a part of Ryan's mailing list or see him on Facebook, you, you know that he had opportunity this week to go and have an endoscopy a camera put down his throat in Seattle uh, as he battles esophageal cancer. He, he had, they had tried here in Lewiston, and there was a blockage that didn't allow the doctors to see what was happening with his tumor in his esophagus. So in Seattle, he, yesterday as we, were, as we were talking back and forth, he was saying that he feels very confident about, about the team in Seattle, their confidence and the equipment and, and, and skill and resources there in Seattle. He feels very confident that they're going to be able to, to get the job done. And it will help his treatment a lot to be able to see what it exactly is happening with his tumor in his esophagus. So be praying for that. That's on Tuesday uh, over in Seattle, and, and Ryan is staying over there. He had some pre-op stuff on Friday, so he, had, he just went for the whole weekend. So he'll be back, though. He'll be back. By God's grace, he'll be back sooner than later. But, uh, so today, I'm, I'm looking at the second passage that I have for us out of 1 Timothy. We're going to talk a little bit about the situation that that Paul left Timothy in, in, in Ephesus. And, and I told you last week, though, I really don't want to lose sight of this idea that Timothy is really receiving Paul's wisdom at the end of Paul's ministry. The Apostle Paul had had, had this long, incredible ministry, and he had a lot to share with, with the next generation of Christian leadership. And so this letter, along with 2 Timothy and the letter to Titus, are these real treasure troves of the wisdom of someone who had been like the most important Christian leader after Jesus, uh, leaving the next generation what 
what we need to know as people who want to follow Jesus and follow Jesus well. And so I, I don't want to lose sight of that legacy idea that we get from, from the book of 1 Timothy. But today we're going to be looking at some history and we're going to be looking at some, some more of the, the theology behind the letter, trying to, trying to really interpret what was happening in the city of Ephesus where Timothy was and was sort of Paul's surrogate in Ephesus. <clears throat> and, uh, and so we'll, we'll look at that. So uh, last week we just got two verses in. Uh, we, just, we looked at the first two verses. This week we're, we're going to uh, start in verse 3. And I'm just going to read for you verses 3 and 4 to begin with. Paul says, When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those who, uh, whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. So last week, I, I tried to put together a timeline of Paul's ministry as we read about it in the book of Acts, and, and we talked about Paul's various missionary journeys and, and his trip then when he went back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. He got arrested, and he was taken to Rome, and the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome awaiting trial from Caesar, and, and with all of the movement that we see in the book of Acts— all of Paul's travels, there's nothing, there's no confluence of events that corresponds really well with what Paul describes right here at the beginning of 1 Timothy. So there's no, there's no time in the book of Acts that we see Paul leaving Ephesus, heading to Macedonia, and leaving Timothy there. It just, it doesn't happen. So that leads us to kind of assume, and, and this is the, the belief of the church historically, that what happened after the book of Acts is, is Paul was released from that imprisonment. His trial went well in, in Rome. He continued to travel around the, around the known world, spreading the gospel, encouraging the churches he had already been to. In one of those trips, then, he, he returned back to Ephesus and, and left Timothy there sort of as a surrogate and, and went on toward Macedonia. And so uh, that, that maybe gives us an idea of, of what Paul was doing, what, what was happening in, in this letter, the, the history behind this letter. And, and then Paul, Paul mentions his purpose here in leaving Timothy in Ephesus in these first couple of verses, where, where he says that he wants, wants, the, wants Timothy to help the church in Ephesus stay strong in the face of false teaching. There's some false teaching that's happening there in, and. Uh, it's trying to take root. There are some teachers that are, are trying to build a following in the church of Ephesus. Paul wants to make sure that Timothy can stand strong against that. And he begins to talk about what this false teaching is in verse 4. In verse 4, we, we read uh, that it's, it looks like endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigree, which lead to, to meaningless speculation, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. And, and so people who have studied Paul's writings and the history of this, there's like lots of different ideas about what exactly the false teaching looked like in, in Ephesus during this time. And one of the kind of strong beliefs, the evidence that we gather from, from here, from the rest of the book of 1 Timothy, is that there's some belief around uh, that there was some teaching about the genealogies of the Old Testament that was weird. Uh, and, and so, can I just like nerd out just a little bit? Just like, so <clears throat> the, idea, the idea about this is that like maybe, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, there's several places where you get these lists of names. You get, you know, whom, who begat whom over and over again begat, 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 or was the father of over and over again. And there, there are a handful of places where that happens. And, and one of the, the interpretive tricks that preachers with too much time on their hands like to do, sorry, that was a joke, and it, wasn't, it was maybe kind of mean, but uh, a, a, a thing that, 
you can hear preaching happen on uh, is that you can dig into these genealogies and all of the names in these genealogies have meaning. Uh, and, you know, names today have meaning. And when we were in the stage of life of giving names to babies, we, we were really interested in the meanings of names. And, and when you dig into the genealogies, an interesting study can be done, just like learning what the names mean, what the, the significances of those names. And, and so sometimes preachers will, will dig in and they'll try to like string together the lists of names and the meanings of those names and, and they'll find some insight, some hidden insight behind all of the meanings of the names and, you know, it's legitimate to look at, like, meanings of names. I, that's not, I'm not trying to be, like, uh, really negative about that. I'm sounding really negative about it. Uh, but maybe there are some, some stories building up around the lists of names. And, and some things, like, Paul calls them myths, right? He says, like, they, it, it, it's possible that there were, like, tall tales being told about whom, whom begat whom, like that, you know, somewhere in that list of names. And, and Paul, Paul really, like, he, he characterizes all of this, saying that, you know, they're digging in, they're having these, like, endless discussions, and, and you know, it's great, great to study scripture and have these, these interesting discussions about the nuance of what somebody's name might mean, but Paul comes to the conclusion, it doesn't help anybody live a life of faith in God. It doesn't help, it's not helping you live a life of faith in God. And, and you know, it can be so, it can be so tempting. It, it scratches like an intellectual itch to, to dig in and like try to find those, those hidden connections that nobody has found before. But the Apostle Paul says like, if it makes you a better Christian, go for it. But these endless discussions about myths, they're not. They're not. In Ephesus, it's not happening. And so, let's just, let's stop those endless discussions. So, that would be like a word of warning to a pastor who totally wants to geek out about some historical uh, detail. So, we'll move right along. Uh, and I'm going to read for us now. Paul, Paul begins to contrast his own teaching with the false teaching that's happening in Ephesus in verses 5 through 7. And this is what he says. He says, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They've turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about, even though they speak so confidently. So Paul continues kind of nailing the false teachers in Ephesus. He's really trying to, to set up <clears throat> a contrast between his own teaching and the, the teaching that is happening. Uh, and, and he contrasts his own teaching by saying, when you hear me preach, when you hear me speak, when you hear of the message that God has given me, you, you are being encouraged to live a life full of love, to be confident in, in the love that you have, to have a clear conscience, to have a genuine faith. And, and Paul, Paul says these other teachers, these false teachers in Ephesus, they want to get into these like endless conversations. They, they want to have these really you know academically stimulating conversations. Man, I'm like nailing myself here over and over again. Uh, you you want to have all of these academically stimulating conversations, but Paul, Paul says like, show me where, where that helps you be filled with pure love. Show me where that clears your conscience, where that helps you live with a clear conscience. Show me how that leads to like true faith and, and real faith, genuine faith. If it does, keep doing it, right? Like, Paul, Paul's not saying, stop talking about the Old Testament. He's saying, show me how your teaching leads to people being filled with love, having a clear conscience, and, and living with pure faith. It, that will be, will be the right outcome of, of good teaching. 
And, and so, um, again, I'm just like nailing myself. And so, with more fear and trepidation, uh, <laughs> I'm going to just keep reading. Um, we need to just let the words of the Apostle Paul speak for a little bit longer. And, and I'll go on to verses 8 through 11, where the Apostle Paul says, We know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their fathers and mothers or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral for, or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. That's kind of how I felt when I read this this week and, and thought I'd have to preach a sermon today. Whoa. So... The Apostle Paul says in verse 7, these, these false teachers, they want to be really good teachers of the Old Testament law. They want to be really good teachers about the law of Moses, which, which is found in, in the Old Testament. And, uh, and then in, in this paragraph, Paul says, it's not that we want to totally get rid of the law, right? He doesn't throw the, the, bath, or the baby out with the bathwater. He doesn't say just because somebody is teaching some dumb thing about myths and endless discussions on the law that we get rid of the law of Moses. But then he goes on and he says, but by the way, the law only applies to sinners and to sin. And, and it doesn't really apply to people who are like righteous, who are living, living a gospel-centered life. Um... And as Christians who understand like the Old Testament and the New Testament, we kind of, we can go part way with Paul. We can go part way. So like breaking it down in the, in the Old Testament, for example, the Old Testament law gave, you know, all these, these lists of laws for, for God's people in, in the Old Testament to follow. Things like the dietary restrictions, like the kosher eating laws, um, there were laws, another law that is like particularly contentious in the New Testament in the early church is the law about circumcision. It, every, in, for Jews, every boy eight days old should be circumcised. Doesn't matter what else is going on, that is like straight from, from God, eighth day circumcision, every boy. And so there's these things that then when Jesus came along, he said, he said, confusing things for people who were trying to be pure according to the Old Testament law. Uh, and, and Jesus said he was like speaking for God. And he said, it's not the food that you eat that makes you unclean. It, it's not, it's what comes out of your mouth. And so in the, in the book of Acts, we read the first Christians debating each other and trying to figure out how, as, as believers in Jesus who said these really weird and disconcerting things about the law, how, how do we live and, and not, like, also just com completely get rid of the law? Because Jesus also said, like, I didn't come to get rid of the law but fulfill it. And so how do we, how do we live with these, these rules about the food we eat when Jesus said, doesn't matter what you eat? And so the the New Testament church came up with this idea that, uh, yes, yeah, some, some of the Old Testament law doesn't really apply to people who come to, come to the faith. Um, and, and we read this, this struggle in the book of Acts about how to apply it. And, it. and it's an ongoing conversation throughout the early church. Even Paul kind of he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Like in the, in the letter of Galatians, he calls people who want to circumcise Greek believers who weren't circumcised before, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Like that's like pretty harsh language. 
But then in Acts chapter 16, Paul gets Timothy, and who Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He wasn't circumcised as a child. And, and Paul says, Timothy's going to come along with us on a missionary journey. But it, Acts 16.3, it says, out of deference for the Jews, Paul arranged for Timothy to be circumcised. And so Paul himself is like kind of struggling with how, how to apply this. And so we, like, come forward 2,000 years, we're, like, very comfortable with the idea that not all of the Old Testament law applies to us. Like, we eat bacon with no, no guilt, right? Like, I, I think that was the theme of our men's retreat a couple of years ago, was uh, more bacon. I, by the way, women's retreat has a theme every year, and I absolutely love it. And then my daughters always ask me, so what's the theme for men's retreat? And we're just not that cool. Anyway. It's, uh, anyway. So, Paul, so we're, we can go partway then, then with Paul, like seeing uh, some of the Old Testament law very clearly doesn't apply to Christians anymore. And then we read what Paul talks about here in, in this last paragraph in verses 8 through 11, and, and the list of laws that he gives us are, like some of the more egregious ones are easy to pass over. Like as, as Christian people, we may joke about it, but honestly we're not like all that tempted to murder anybody. Like, as Christian people, hopefully, hopefully, like, that's not one that we deal with on a daily basis. Uh, getting a little pushback from the youth group, I see, but we'll patricide. So, you know, that none of us kidnapping or slave trading, not on anybody's radar these days. But we live in a culture where... Uh, like highly sexualized culture. And, and Paul calls out sexual immorality. And he, he says like, the law is for those people, not for believers. He talks about lying. Like we live in a culture where, and we are challenged by, as believers, like where sometimes it's just easier to stretch the truth a little bit. Sometimes it's easier to just like not tell the whole truth. <laughs> right? Right? We, uh, and we don't have to say everything that's true all the time, do we? We, we live in a, in a world where, you know, Paul talks about keeping your word in this, prom keeping your promise. We live in a world where sometimes, you know, if I don't keep my word to a T in this situation, it's, it's going to be less awkward, right? And Paul, Paul says, like, the law is only for those people, for people who, who are murderers. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you the soundbite. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the soundbite that says, that Old Testament law, thou shalt not murder, it doesn't apply to Christians. That's... That is not what we believe. Uh, but here Paul is saying, the law is good as, it, as it's intended to be used. It's not intended for the church, he says. It's not intended for people who, who are living right, for doing what's right. It's for the lawless. So, uh, I would be completely lost <laughs> if this is where it ended. But uh, thank you, Lord. The rest of the letter was, was preserved. And Paul keeps, keeps on giving us a little bit of a hint about how to, to understand this. I'm going to skip a, few, a couple of paragraphs here, and I'm, I'll come back to verses 12 through 17 to next Sunday. But Paul, Paul takes a little 
a little aside to talk about his own experience with God, and it's super powerful. It deserves its own treatment, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that for next week, and I'm going to just come back at verse 18. And so in 1 first, first Timothy 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. Again, I would love to spend lots of time in sort of meaningless speculation about what the prophetic words were that were spoken about Timothy, but we have no idea. There's like no way of knowing what this, this is all about. And so I don't know that it's going to help us live a life of faith, so I'm going to leave it. Then uh, he goes on, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. My instructions to you, based on the prophetic word uh, spoken about you, may they, my instructions, help you uh, uh, fight well in the Lord's battles. Verse 19, cling to your faith in Christ and help your keep your conscience clear. For some people... <clears throat> have deliberately violated their own consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenius and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they may, might learn not to blaspheme God. So what stands out in this passage is, is Paul's, to me, is Paul's emphasis on conscience. Some of the false teachers in Ephesus had said, it's okay to deliberately, or, or it is right, in fact, to deliberately violate one's own conscience. And, and I don't think that this is a matter of like, what is something I could do that would make me feel really guilty in going and doing that? I don't necessarily think that they were like looking for ways to violate their own conscience. I think that what was happening was, was people were, were aware that there were opportunities around them to do things that would violate their conscience. And rather than staying away from those things, they said, eh, what's a big deal? What's a big deal? What we know about some of the teaching in Ephesus, or what we believe we know about some of the teaching in Ephesus, is that there was a tendency toward, toward super-spiritualization of things, toward, toward a real like understanding that God is going to save your soul, and therefore your body doesn't really matter all that much. And, and this, this hyper-spiritualization of things meant that you could really, as long as you, as you kept your soul clean, which I don't know how you do that necessarily, uh, you, can, you can do things physically that are against what a clean soul would do. And so, in, in that understanding, you know, it's not that big a deal if, if with your body you are doing things that are against God's law. It's not, it's not that big a deal if you do things with your body that, that maybe you know you, you shouldn't do. And, and so, it's not that big a deal if you, if you lie, if you, if you stretch the truth all the time. If, if, if your body's just going to die and rot anyway, you know, What's, what's the big deal if you sleep with your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband? Like, that's, it's no big deal because your body's, it's just your body. It's not, you keep your soul out of that, right? I mean, it's just, it's just your body. And so there, there's some understanding that maybe in, in Ephesus what was happening was there, there were people who were intentionally ignoring God's law, intentionally doing things they probably knew they ought not do, because they thought, eh, my, it's just physical body stuff. I can go to, to that temple and worship that other god. It's really fun. They have the best parties there. I can go and do that. And it doesn't really matter, because that's just my body doing that. I'm not really, like, doing it spiritually. And, and so Paul, Paul addresses that idea that people would purposely violate their, their own conscience. And, and he says, obviously, people who purposely violate their own conscience are still in sin. And he gives two examples. There, there's Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he had booted out of the church. He said he turned them over to Satan. By the way, that's not like Paul telling them there's no hope for them. 
That is Paul saying, those people are like any other unsaved people in the world. Uh, he doesn't want them to blaspheme. He doesn't want them to say things that, on behalf of God that aren't true about God. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want the world to think that these people are, are teachers in the church. Um, but he, he wants the church to treat them as if they are, are outside of the church. But in Paul's, Paul's words here, I, I feel a little bit of hope, a little bit of, of light in trying to understand how he's trying to apply the law, the Old Testament law, uh, it, especially when we look back at verses 8 through 11, and he says that the law doesn't apply. And, and I think it has to do with, with the way that Paul talks about conscience. And, and in this passage, I'm reminded of what Paul has said in Romans chapter 14. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 14, we see an, a place where believers were condemning one another. In the, in the church in Rome, there were some believers who thought that it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And then there were some Christians who said, if you, if you eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol, you're essentially participating in idolatry, and, and that puts you on the outs with God. And so there was this, this fighting going on in the church in Rome about, about this issue. And, and here's how Paul addressed it. He, he says, this is Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. I'm just going to read it. Sorry, I don't have it in PowerPoint. He says, you may believe there is nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So if I put that, Romans 14, next to what Paul has said here in 1 Timothy 1, I, I start to see maybe the purpose and understanding of, of the law from Paul's idea, from Paul's perspective. The law, the law was given to give some, some necessary boundaries. If, if we think about the purpose of the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law was given to help people understand God's character. The Old Testament law was to, to help people understand how to live in a way that pleases and honors God. The Old Testament law, if, if a person followed it really, really well, they would become they would start to look like a representation of God. You know, the, the, the Old Testament hope for God's people was that the world would be blessed through them. And, and in order for the world to be blessed for, through them, they would need to begin to, like, reflect God's goodness to the world. And so the Old Testament law was given to help people understand what God looks like and what God expects from, from his people. And, and, you know, rules in that way are really good, right? Rules that help us know the boundaries, like, the, those are really good. A speed limit, uh, Paul Wheelock and I were talking about this week, this, this week. A speed limit, it's a good thing. It tells you what, what is a safe, reasonable speed to drive on a road. Now, some of us uh, have to be visited by police officers at times to be reminded that it is a good thing. And it doesn't feel like a good thing when you're getting a speeding ticket, right? But, but it's a reminder that it's, it's, it is for your safety that these boundaries have been given. It is for your own good. It's for your own good that there's a law about putting on your seatbelt because you're less apt to die if you follow that law. <clears throat> And, and so the law, Paul, Paul says, for people who are outside of the faith, the law is a good thing because it points people in the direction of God. It points people so that they can become more like God by following it. But then we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus, and we get particularly to the point when Jesus was raised from the dead and he went to, to be with his father. And Jesus said hang out because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And the Holy Spirit is going to teach you everything. And the Holy Spirit is going to, to be your helper in following everything that I've taught you. And so, I guess I, 
I, I see it this way, that when a person is far from God, when a person is far from God, it is right and good and helpful to have some guidelines, some rules, some, some instruction for just orienting ourselves to go in the direction of God. It's, it's good and right to know what the boundaries are. Yeah, where, where, where in all of these choices that I'm faced with day in and day out can I find God? Where can I? And so it's helpful for us to have some, some law, some rule, to know when, when, we're, when we're trying to get close to God, like what direction do I go? Sometimes it'd be nice to have like a more exhaustive list, right? Wouldn't it be nice to have like a really exhaustive list about like what is what does God expect of me as a parent? Oh man, I could really some there are some days when I need in a much more exhaustive list than I've been given. And and so these the lists of rules in the Old Testament, they they take somebody who is going every which direction, doesn't matter, don't, don't sense anything. God's not telling me any way is right or wrong. I am just living my life. The Old Testament comes along and, and it says, you know, God doesn't want you to murder. It, murder is outside of God's plan for, for you. God wants you to honor your father and mother. Dishonoring your father and mother is outside of God's plan for you. And the Old Testament comes along with these rules and it begins to, to narrow our focus onto, onto God's, God's vision for humanity. And, and I believe there are, there are good Christian people who live all of their Christian existence trying to understand where the boundaries are from the rules that are written. And God honors that faith. Faith that leads to obedience is God-honoring. That is good. That is good. But what Paul seems to be describing in, in this passage seems to be more than just accepting those Old Testament rules or any, any standard of rule and living by it to know what direction God is. It, it seems like what Paul is describing here is that when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the church, that God could come into our lives and God could shape our conscience. God could shape our thoughts about life and the decisions we make. God could, could remake the way we think so that we think God's thoughts, so that we want what God wants for us so that our conscience is in line with God's good plan and good will for us. And Paul seems to indicate that this is, this is an achievable Christian experience. This is, this is Christian living when done correctly. In the Church of the Nazarene, we really like this idea. We really, really like this idea. In fact, we, we like the, the biblical wording for, for this. We think the biblical wording for this comes out of the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we, we call it sanctification. We really, we, we like that. <laughs> we consider ourselves uh, a church that that believes in God's power to shape our conscience so that we would want what God wants for us. We believe that it, it is an achievable experience for all believers. But we also believe that there's growth in it, that, you know, God's Spirit can, can change your conscience and make you want what He wants, but it still takes a long time for your human will to, to do that on every occasion. That there is growth still, even, even after God has come in and, and shaped your thinking and made you want what God wants. And, and so, as, as Christian people, we, we believe that, that God could do just this, though. It, it, 
In our world, the, the, ma the majority Christian message, though, it, it kind of falls back and it says, I'll never get beyond what, what Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 1, 9. The, the, the person who is lawless and rebellious and ungodly and sinful, that describes me. Paul says that, that doesn't need to be the normal Christian experience. That, that doesn't need to be how you live, how you think of yourself. You could think of yourself as someone who, who by your inclinations, because God has worked in you, your conscience is aligned with God. Now, I, I told you the silly story about Dean, the, the stud rock climber, um, because Dean, Dean is a safe guy in the mountains. Like, anytime I climb with Dean, I'm super impressed by just, like, he, he thinks about the principles of safety all the time. He's, like, the most, the redundancy is, like, a big principle in safety and climbing. He's, like, just thinks redundancy. It just oozes out of him. Uh, he, he just, by his nature, because he has so been formed in, in the mountains, he, he, just, he just does it. When I'm still a learner, I'm, I'm always going to be a learner, and I have to think pretty hard about, about those things. Dean, Dean is like this, the sanctified climber. <laughs> he is, <laughs> in more ways than one. Uh, Dean, it, it's just a natural part of, of his, the way he moves in the mountains. For me, I'm probably always going to be stuck in, in trying to remember the rules, double, triple checking that I think about it, asking myself questions over and over again, thinking back to the books I've read, trying to remember. God wants us to be people who, who because he has moved in our conscience, we, we want what he wants. We do what, what is good for us because his will has so, has so shaped us. So, uh, this morning I'm, I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to, to join me in prayer uh, and, and to ask, ask the Lord to keep doing this work, to, to shape us, to, to be at work in us, to make us want what is his will for us? Will you pray with me? Lord, it's, it's easy for us to, to want the exhaustive list of rules that we can follow. It's really tempting, God, to, to go about this Christian life looking for the latest and greatest rule that we can follow so that we're sure that we're on the right path. It's really tempting in a world that is in flux and, and always changing, it's really tempting God to say, all I need to do is just keep updating the rule book so that I know how to react in this world. And so God, uh, I pray that you would help us to, to think more clearly about our faith, that we we would think about the identity that you want to create in us rather than the rigid system that you are trying to impose upon us. God, you're not trying to, to shave off the, the edges so we fit perfectly in the Christian box. You're trying to shape us from within so that when we make decisions, when we interact with others, when we follow our conscience, we end up seeming more like Jesus because Jesus' spirit is shaping who we are. I believe, Lord, that you can do this when you fill your people with your spirit. And so, God, I pray. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. Fill us with your Holy, Holy Spirit. We, we believe that this experience, it, it begins with our wanting it. And so, God, 
as, as people who know that we've got a ways to go, God, we, we pray that you would, you would move in our hearts, fill us with your spirit, shape us so that our desires become your desires, so that our will becomes your will, so that when we follow our conscience, we are, we are doing what you have called us to do. Thank you, God, for this hope that we have that uh, we might not need to carry around a rule book, <laughs> but that you would, you would plant in our hearts your very will for us. That as our world changes, we would know how to react because you've already shaped us. As our situations change and as we come across new, new challenges, you know, we'll still pray about it, but God, we'll, we, will, we will know how we are to, to react because you, you've been at work. Thank you. Thank you, God, for this hope that we have. I pray that you would be with these dear brothers and sisters of mine as we go into this week, Lord. Um, we believe that your spirit can move in an instant, but we believe that the, the working out of this in our lives, it's, it, it's day in and day out. And the challenges of tomorrow are going to put to the test any commitment we make today. And so, God, I pray that it, as this week wears on, that you would draw us back to, to this reminder, that you, you have a good plan to shape us into the image of Jesus. Help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let me just uh, send you out with a benediction. By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you be sanctified holy? And may you, may you be holy as he who has called you is holy. It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. But the Spirit of God will go with you into this week as you, as you attempt to live into it. God bless you as you go. You're dismissed. Thank you for joining us on the First Mass Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.